On this episode, William said he was once on a German talk show, and the woman interviewing asked him, she said, Mr. Williams, why do you think <laughs> there is not so much comedy in Germany? And he replied, did you ever think you killed all the funny people? Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of No Country for Old Mark and Juan. I am your host, Mark Pearson, and this is my co-host... Old Juan! <laughs> old Juan. Yep, Old Juan. You're still not 50 yet. We, like, I actually had a conversation uh, somewhat a couple <laughs> weeks ago, and they were like, oh, you're old. And I was like, actually, no, I don't think... I think being old is just like a frame of mind or like a mindset. Because my grandpa, he's like 83, 84, something in there. He's in his like early 80s. And he still like has a part-time job, gets out and does stuff, gets up on his house, works on his air conditioner, and like does stuff in the backyard. Being old is a mindset. I don't feel, you know, 38. My dad's 63 and he travels the world. Being old really is a mindset. Like obviously your body doesn't react and respond the way it used to, but... I think a lot of being, if you sit there and tell yourself you're old and you're not able to do stuff, then guess what? You're going to, your body's going to respond to that and then you're not going to be able to do things. Oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll step down. <laughs> Fuck. I'll step, <laughs> I'll step down off my soapbox. Uh, so everybody, thank you for <laughs> listening in. That was kind of unexpected, but I just ran with it. <laughs> I'm not running nowhere. <laughs> No, and actually, speaking of running, I'm running a 5K in a week. So this week I'm been practicing. I'm gonna go run 5K tomorrow to prep for it. I'm running with Hang, guest from like episode 16. That's gonna be actually really fun. I really do enjoy running. So as long as my knee holds up, I'm gonna be fine. But I'll just wear a knee brace, take a couple Advil, and drink a lot of coconut water. That'll I'll be good. I'll bring my scooter. <laughs> would be hilarious okay so thank you everybody for listening uh coming back again or for the first time you know i don't know every once in a while we might be getting a new first time listener if this is the first time welcome you can reach out to us at facebook.com slash no country podcast or you can find us on instagram at no underscore country underscore podcast or on twitter at podcast underscore country you can email us at no country podcast at gmail.com and please send us voicemails at 346-291-0050. So, today, we have something, at least, that's kind of special to me. Uh, we're going to, you know, do, we've been doing kind of, you know, been doing comedy interviews and talking about, like, either historical figures or political figures. We're going to change gears a little bit. So, we're going to talk about someone who I think is probably one of the funniest people who ever lived. But anyways, fun, animated, crass, goofy, quick-witted, and intelligent. These are just a few words to describe one of the most unique men to ever live on this planet. To the average person, he was a man who gave millions of hours of laughter and joy. Yet behind the scenes, he battled with many dark demons, ultimately leading him to take his own life far, far too soon. His iconic roles in films impact children in the 1990s and then continued to make them laugh as they grew into adulthood 
there will only ever be one person like Robin Williams. True that. Yes. Uh, actually, yeah. I first ever, first time I ever uh, heard any or saw anything Robin Williams did was in Aladdin, the 1992 cartoon. And my parents thought it was hilarious. And I didn't even understand half the jokes till I got older. <laughs> I'm so old. My first exposure was Mork. Oh, yeah. Mork, Mork, Mork and Mindy. Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The good old Happy Day spinoff. We'll get into that a little bit. But anyways, his full name was Robin McLaurin Williams. And he was born in Chicago, Illinois on July 21st, 1951. And that's literally the only other person I can think of that has the same birthday as me. Obviously not the same year, but my birthday is July 21st as well. So I didn't know that till I researched this. Uh, he was born to his parents, Robert Williams and Lori McLaurin. Wow, that seems a little bit redundant. Yeah, I was thinking that myself. It's like an echo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like who names their kid? That's like my dad calling me Mark Markson or something <laughs> like what? <laughs> Yeah, you, you better make it in showbiz with a name like that. <laughs> His father was a senior executive at the Ford Motor Company, and he was frequently frequently gone from home for work. He would travel all over the Midwest taking care of Ford dealerships. And uh, Robin's mother was a model until she had children, and then this led to Robin becoming very, very close with her. Uh, Robin described his father as being very intense. And uh, Williams said that his mother was an important influence on his humor. They said that she was very funny and they would try and make each other laugh. And Robin would often try to make her laugh to get attention. That's where Robin's kind of sense of humor developed was from his mom. And actually, I found a video of him and his mom, like kind of just and you can see where he, he got a lot of it from his mom. Like his mom was sharing a story. Like when Robin was a little boy, uh, they were having a dinner party and she got some like spaghetti and she like stuck it up her nose and pretended to sneeze it out. And, her, and then Robin's dad was like, Oh my gosh, not again. Like he was all like agitated by it. They're like cracking up. They think it's like the funniest thing. So he really got a lot of his humor from his mom. It was pretty cool to see like little clips of that. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Okay, so, but growing up, Robin uh, Williams, his father, was watching The Tonight Show with Jonathan Winters, and he was laughing really, really hard, and then, you know, little young Robin there was amazed that someone actually made his dad laugh, and according to him, he said, my dad was a sweet man, but not an easy laugh. So, sounds like kind of like the stern 19, you know, 50s, 1960s, just mm, all business kind of dad. Not a lot of those left. No, not at all. <laughs> sad, sad, man. Yeah. But uh, William said in, in an interview that he was very quiet and shy when he was a kid. Uh, that just seems really weird to me. Like, after seeing, like, all of his stand-up and his movie roles, like, you don't imagine him being, like, a shy and quiet kid. But he overcame his shyness when he became involved in his high school drama department. And then later, after being in Chicago, his family moved to Detroit, Michigan. So he lived in Detroit for quite a while uh, when his father's job was transferred there. And in high school, he was on the wrestling team and was voted class president, which is pretty interesting. And actually, the school he went to, he went to like a private boys school when they lived in Chicago and then in Michigan. So he had was a pretty... Was it De La Salle or something here? Yeah. 
and actually his dad worked was like an executive at Ford. So he came from a very, very well off home. So they put him in like the best schools and everything. So he got a really, really good education. Uh, but when he was 16, the family, his dad retired and then they moved to San Francisco and it changed his whole life. He went from, you know, going to an all boys private school to just a normal high school. And he said that the culture at the time was drastically changing because it was in the 60s and it was very, very different in San Francisco than it was in the Midwest. So, you know, and William said he really embraced that fully. He said the first time he did anything funny in front of others was in high school when he did an impression of his history teacher and the whole class laughed. And he kind of got hooked on that. Uh, when he graduated from high school in 1969, he was voted most likely to not succeed and funniest by his classmates. So, so there's hope for me. <laughs> yeah. They, I guess everyone thought he was just kind of a goofball and didn't think he would really do much, but they were horribly wrong and mistaken. Yeah, I'm really interested uh, to hear how this all unfolds. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. Uh, after high school, he enrolled at the Claremont's Men's College studying political science, another really expensive, private, all-boys school. Uh, since it was only a men's school, there was only one class where he could interact with women, an improvisational theater class. So being kind of girl crazy and, you know, just out of high school, he enrolled in that class and he began to lose interest in his political science classes. Yeah, he was taking political science. Which yeah, but can you imagine being in like some beginning improv class with him? Oh, my oh dude, he's just knocking it out of the park. <laughs> Like, I don't care how talented you were. Every, everyone in there was just like, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, one thing I did find, (laughs) it wasn't, I saw an interview with David Letterman and David Letterman was in Hollywood, like in the, like the seventies. And he was trying to get into stand up. And he said the first time he met Robin Williams and he said, he saw Williams do stand up. And he said, he, he said, he told it, turned to his friend and said, crap we're screwed he's like that guy's gonna get everything like they recognized right, right away that's what i'm saying how- like <laughs> if you've, you know following his career like we did growing up with it yeah you realize what a super talent this yeah. guy was i mean his his th- thoughts he thought faster than you can talk you know what i mean yeah he th- he yeah his his brain processed stuff so fast like he did every so much stuff you do on the fly like after this, like anybody out there, if you're interested, I recommend going and looking up like YouTube videos of him, like interviews with him. Interviews with him are really fascinating because he's doing all this stuff, so much stuff on the fly. And like he'll put in like bits from his stand up or he'll just make up stuff on the fly. And it's super interesting because he thinks so fast. Yeah, it's, always, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a comforting feeling for us crazies. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, man, he. Yeah, because, you know, that speed is just like, like you said, if you see him in interviews, anything yeah. they say, he immediately has some quick response and like two or three already lined up and then ties it in with something that happened five minutes yeah. ago and then closes out like with an end and a bow. Like, oh, what? The? like, and he can do that. And he did that all the time. Yeah, it was constant. Yeah, there's so much like so much. I came up in the research where it's just everywhere he went. He was like that. Uh, but <laughs> He enrolled in that, uh, you know, improvisational theater class and he stopped going to his, you know, other classes. And so when his dad found out about it, 
His dad said he wasn't going to pay for the expensive schooling anymore. So Williams went back home and then enrolled at the Marin Community College in Marin, California, where he studied acting for three years. Uh, that actually, that choice right there, like set him on the path that would change his life, you know, forever. Uh, he then received a scholarship to the Juilliard School in New York City. Yeah, the Juilliard School is one of the best performing art schools in the world. Uh, he was accepted and taught by John Houseman, and he's a very, very successful, very famous actor and director. And uh, he was accepted into the advanced program there at the Juilliard School. And Williams said that Houseman worked them extremely hard, but Williams excelled and he just like soaked it all up. And he was actually in the same class as Christopher Reeve, the first guy to play Superman in a movie. He'd have to be Superman to keep up with that guy. <laughs> yeah. And actually, here's a quote here from Christopher Reeve. He said when he uh, first met Williams, he here's this quote. He said, this is about the first time he met Williams. He said, Williams wore a tie-dyed shirts with tracksuit bottoms and talked a mile a minute. I'd never seen so much energy contained in one person. He was like an untied balloon that had been inflated and immediately released. I watched in awe as he virtually caromed off the walls of the classrooms and hallways. To say that he was, quote, on would be a major understatement. Yeah. <laughs> like all the time. Yeah. It yeah, it's 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 unreal. Like, and actually, you can find uh, there's a documentary out him about his life, which is really good. And they have shots and clips from him at Juilliard or him in high school and stuff. And he's just like running circles about it around everybody else. It's it's crazy. But Williams' teachers there at Juilliard were amazed at how he could change accents with ease. He had a teacher there who was trying to instruct them on how to do fake accents. And it, uh, one of the teachers said he could change from Russian to Irish to Scottish to English and Italian without any effort. And something that most other students needed instruction and hours of practice with. He was just like, bam, he had it instantly. And then in his third year at Juilliard, Houseman, the leader of the advanced program, suggested to Williams that he should leave because there was nothing more that they could teach him there. He wasn't even finished. And the teacher was like, you, you don't waste your time. Go do something else. I've taught you everything I can. So Robin left and started his stand-up career. Well, they were wrong uh, about him. We talk about overachieving. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, look, we, we have nothing else to offer you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, but the thing is, these aren't the type of people that are going to fluff people up either. No. These are the top, top people. So they're very stringent, like you said. Yeah. And if they're saying that, like, yeah, this really sets them apart as a super... You know, a super comic, really, because he would, yeah. he wasn't just like the stand-up comics, the physical comic. He was all of it in one person. Yeah, because his he could his do physical. It yeah, it wasn't just facial either. Like all of his movements, hands, legs, like I said, the dancing, the way everything. So he was like a complete comedian. Yeah. If if he if he's one of the few, if not the only one, that was a complete comedian. He could do it all. Like, I can't think of any other comedians out there that are really like him. That's like, what I that, said when they were in high school and they got in that first class. Or whatever, it was like, yeah. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, well, he's here. We're screwed. <laughs> like, he's going to do I always, I've, I've had that happen to myself a couple times where 
you know, you, you'll think you're something, and then someone comes in and just like wipes the floor with you, and you're like, yeah. But to me, that's awesome because it's like, man, there are people out there that are just, you know, so good at certain things, like just gifted. Yeah, I I love watching people who are just like excel at things like that, and that's yeah why I would even sit like you said and watch an interview. I don't even care what the interview's about. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's gonna make me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, because it's it's really fun to watch and like just be around somebody that's just like on that incredible like next level of just amazingness at whatever it is. It could be music, it could be writing, it could be you know many. There's so many different talents out there, but when you can like interact with someone who's just like the best of the best, it's really cool because you're just like wow, like how do you do this? It's really really cool. But after the Juilliard School, after he left there, he moved back to San Francisco where he began bartending and working on his uh, stand-up comedy. He would bartend, and then after so long, they would, you know, after he worked for a while, they would let him up on stage. So he started, you know, writing his jokes and honing his craft, which I'm sure he didn't have to work. I mean, <laughs> he had to work at it, obviously, but it seems like a lot of it just came naturally to him. Yeah, but you also have to think, he still did it the right way. He didn't yeah. come when there was some arrogance. Like I went to Juilliard and they kicked me out because I was too good. Like you know what I mean? Like sent me on. Yeah. Uh, and so you just need to put me on stage. No, he he did it right. He earned the right. You know what I mean? He put in the work. Well, it's like Sun Tran said last week. He's like to be a stand up comedian, you have to pay your dues and you have to put in your time. And he did too. Like we really have to. It so, really it really showed a, a good character though. Yeah, it did. So uh, shortly after you know he did that in San Francisco for a while, he moved to Los Angeles and started doing uh, improv comedy regularly. He said that he really enjoyed improv because he was able to actively create in that environment. So he could really felt like he could be the most creative just doing improv. Uh, he began dating a uh, woman named Valerie Velarde and they would later get married. And she actually began to help him work on and hone his material. He would like, you know, tell her jokes, bounce ideas off her. And she helped him work on that. And she, uh, she said at the time she was very happy because they had each other and that was all that she wanted. And at that time, that was all that they wanted. They, you know, they were together, they were in LA and, you know, he was working, but he wasn't like a superstar or anything. So everything was good there for a while. And then Robin's first big break was landing the role of Mork on the TV show, Mork and Mindy which was a spinoff of Happy Days. And actually, he did a guest spot on an episode of Happy Days when an actor left at the last minute. So he went and tried out for the role and won it when the producer called him in and said, hey, please take a seat. And Williams sat on his head. And then Williams improvised most of his lines and just was his normal, physical, funny self. And the producers were so impressed with him they said, okay, you know what? We're going to give you this role in the show. And then the creator of Mork and Mindy, he was already thinking about making the show. And he's like, you know, I or he had an idea for a show. And he said, I want to get this guy, Robin Williams, into the show. So then they, you know, they cast Robin as the lead on the show. And the writers of the show wrote the scripts to accommodate his improvisation, uh, physical comedy, and his just like all over the place behavior. So at that time, uh, sitcoms used three cameras and they were operated by union cameramen. Actors were supposed to move and stand in their spots. If you've ever been like theater or on stage, you know that there's like X's on the floor and you're supposed to be, you know, in your scene, you're supposed to go stand in that location. 
So at this time, the at this point in time, the director or the sorry, <clears throat> the cameraman wouldn't move to follow you know Williams around, and so the director of the show became frustrated with the cameraman because Williams was so often not in the shot because he was all over the set, like climbing upstairs and hiding. I mean, he's literally bouncing all over the place. And he would go tell the cameraman, hey, follow Williams, but they refused. They said, no, if he's a good actor, he'll be on his mark. We don't have to move. And so finally the director said, forget this. And he added a fourth camera and he told the fourth cameraman, he said, your job is to just follow Williams around. He's like, that's your only job. He said, no matter where he is, just follow him around. And because of this, now all sitcoms are filmed with four cameras in this style because of Robin Williams. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so he inadvertently changed how sitcoms are filmed and kind of like the production of it. Uh, Mork and Mindy became a hit with a weekly audience of around 60 million, and this led to Williams becoming a superstar. It you know, gained him a lot of fame and notoriety. The show ran for four seasons, but was finally canceled after season four because of the show's declining ratings and actually uh it was <laughs> uh i was looking into it a little bit more they changed the writing style of the show and they since disco was big then they tried to like make it more disco-y and the ratings just plummeted i think they probably the show probably would have lasted longer if they had just stuck with the formula that it worked rather than trying to change the show well you know, to he make carried it that fad. show and at least it gave him a lot of good exposure yeah well then he was cast in the film popeye the live action one popeye uh based on the cartoon you know popeye the sailor man out there for people if you've never heard of that uh, it was supposed to be a huge blockbuster film and it didn't lose money but it was not a blockbuster success that disney and paramount hoped it would be and it was considered a disappointment i've seen some of it and it's pretty disappointing <laughs> i'm not gonna lie like, I can see why people didn't enjoy it. It wasn't terrible, but it, it was like this goofy musical and it just kind of campy little weird movie. And it kind of restricted him because he was just that character. Yeah, it, he, he didn't really have much of a like he, he got to use his energy, but he didn't really it wasn't really a good fit for him. So around this time, Williams began using drugs frequently, especially cocaine. Uh, he would party with people like John Belushi. And on March 5th, 1982, Williams was partying with Belushi, Robert De Niro, and Catherine Evelyn Smith. That night, Belushi did a speedball, which is a combination of cocaine and heroin, for those of you who don't know what that is. I had no and idea. <laughs> There's probably like two people out there like, what's a speedball? <laughs> That's what it is. And uh, Belushi suffered a drug overdose and it killed him. But Williams and De Niro and Smith had all already left after, well, when he overdosed. The following morning, uh, Williams' wife told him that Belushi had died and this freaked Williams out. He said the shock of that caused him to sober up really, really quick. And also, the birth of his first child was right around that time. So, right around then was when he first started having his struggles with drug addiction. He would go from, you know, being like, okay, I'm going to be clean. And he would find all this motivation. And then he would slip up and start using drugs again. And it was just, you know, it was, <laughs> what was, there was a, there was a, a joke. He said, he said, he said, cocaine is God's way of telling you that you make too much money. <laughs> yeah. That's some expensive shit. <laughs> yeah. But 
yeah, he there was a it became like kind of a lifelong struggle for him was uh, the drugs, and actually, well, we'll get into that later. More but, money, uh, more problems. <laughs> exactly. Williams uh, still kept on working on his stand up. He never stopped doing his stand up. He didn't do it all the time, but he was. He would come, you know, he would still do stand-up every few years. He'd go on a tour. And as he continued to make more movies, over the years, he did three HBO comedy specials. Uh, two of those are my favorite stand-up specials of all time. Robin Williams' Live on Broadway and Robin Williams' Weapons of Self-Destruction. Those two are just... I've seen Live on Broadway probably 40, 50 times, and I still laugh. It's so good. <clears throat> but he had a breakthrough in his stand-up, when he was booked for Robin Williams Live at the Met. And it was at an unusual venue, being that it was an opera house, and it was recorded and then sold later as an audio album and a TV movie. Uh, his manager at the time, David Steinberg, said in an interview that both of them had been working on his stand-up act for months leading up to it. They knew it was coming, and they were like, okay, we, you know, we're just let's write these jokes, let's refine these jokes, let's make this as good as it can be. And he said, when it came to the evening of the show, Steinberg was shocked when Williams kept improvising jokes on the spot. He said at least 20, 25% of the act he had never heard before, and he was amazed. Wow. So, like, even at, like, even, like, during one of his big moments, he was, like, a quarter of the time, he's just, like, making stuff up on the spot. And he was just, like, blown away because it was hilarious. So, Williams and his wife, they had a son in 1983 named Zach Williams. <clears throat> they uh, began to grow apart because of his career. It kept him away from home so much. In an interview, his uh, wife, Velarde, said that when her and Williams got married, they had an understanding that they would spend their time together. But as he was on the road doing stand-up or on set doing movies, they began to grow apart, and she wanted a marriage where she was with her partner regularly. She didn't want him to give up his growing career for her, so they decided to separate and then divorce in 1988. Soon after the separation, Williams was seen dating his son's uh, nanny, Marsha Garces. Oh boy, Garces? I think it's Garces. I'm, I know somebody out there who speaks Spanish, like Tamika or Jasmine, you're going to correct me. Just send me a note. Thank you. <laughs> She'll send it in a taco. Yeah. <laughs> If Tamika sends it, I want her to send it in homemade gumbo. <laughs> I stumped so one. Good. Sorry, man. You can't mention food like that around a fat man. I totally lost where we were. Uh, so uh, the media began heavily writing about him and saying that he was cheating on his wife. But in an interview... Actually, within the last few years, actually since uh, Williams died, Velarde insisted that they were already separated and Williams was free to be with somebody else. Their divorce had just not been finalized. She wasn't upset about it. So whether that's true or not, his ex-wife says, you know, it was already over and she wasn't all upset about it. So, I mean, she she doesn't sound like a vindictive, angry person. With all that energy, though, you thought he might have went outside the house. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I just don't see him going like, well, you're close. <laughs> yeah. Get a bounce down the street and found something. There was a, in the interview with uh, his first wife, she said that when he would come home, she said he wouldn't really know what to do with himself. Like he didn't mind being home. She said he, when he was home, he was either just crashing and trying to recover 
because he was so burnt out from expending all that energy. She said, or he was just antsy because he wanted to, he needed to get the energy out. She said he would just come home and crash and just be like, do nothing. And then when he finally regenerated his energy back, he would just be like, okay, I need, he, he would need to like find a way to get his energy out. The guy was just like constantly, I mean, yeah, a poster child for ADHD probably. <laughs> but Williams and Garces were married in 1989 and they had a child together, Zelda Williams. And yes, Zelda was named after the video game Legend of Zelda. Uh, Williams enjoyed video games, sometimes performing at consumer entertainment trade shows, and he also enjoyed pen and paper role-playing games such as Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I've always wanted to play D and D, but I never have. I don't know enough nerdy people to do that. And oh, I got because... your D and D connection. Don't even worry. <laughs> that <laughs> I was going to say that's probably because in my circle of friends, I'm the nerdiest person. Oh, I, mean, I, don't, I have a podcast. I don't play, and I don't personally hang out with this person, but I know some people that... <laughs> they, I don't know anybody. Oh, dude, they buy the costumes. I'm not even shit. These are adults, man. Okay, I wouldn't do the costume. I just want to play it. I, I've never played it. I would like to play it and try it. I'm sure I would enjoy it, but it's funny. I actually, out of curiosity, there's a website called meetup.com, and I was like, I wonder if I could find somebody to like play on Meetup. And so you look up like Dungeons & Dragons... And it's all these groups, like invites, but all the groups only ever have one person, and that's the person who posted the invite. And I was like, so do none of these people like connect with each other? Like, I was like, what it's is this? It's the sad reality of d <laughs> I was like, why don't they just all go to one? Like, are they all in different parts of Houston or what? And then, you know, looking at a couple of these guys, I was like, I do not feel going comfortable. I do not feel comfortable going to this guy's house. Because I might never be seen again. If it's just me and him, there's like five or six people there. I'm not going to be that worried about it. But, I mean, what if there's like a Dungeons & Dragons serial killer out there? That was the first thing my brain went to. Well, they're coming for you now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <clears throat> so, in 1988, uh, Williams' film Good Morning Vietnam was released. It was a film based on Real-life airman second-class Adrian Cronauer. Probably saying that wrong, but I tried. However, according to the real Adrian Cronauer, most of the stuff in the movie really didn't happen. In typical Hollywood fashion, they made most of the movie up, and according to Cronauer, the movie is just Williams being himself. The movie was a huge success, though, and Williams won a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy and was also nom nominated for an Academy War. Oh my gosh. An Academy Award for this role. Uh, Williams also worked on Broadway. This is something I never knew until I started researching this. He had a part in Waiting for Godot with Steve Martin. And Williams uh, said after that he had worked on that play with Steve Martin, that he learned a lot about timing from Martin, admitting that he would just rush through his bits. But Martin taught him the power of pausing, like when to pause and let the audience laugh and how to build laughter through pause or silence or like physical comedy. And he said he learned a lot from him. Martin said about Williams in his time working with him, he said, Williams was a very, very vulnerable person. And then on stage, Williams was the master. He was in charge funny, quick, and very comfortable. But off the stage, he was less comfortable. He felt that Williams was just barely holding himself together. 
And Martin also said that during the time when they were both working on Waiting for Godot, Williams was clean and recognized that it was very difficult for him to stay clean. He said he noticed that he had to concentrate very hard and that level of concentration to stay clean was wearing him out. So when Williams would do a role for a movie, he would research it a great deal and really dive into the part. He really wanted to understand what made the character that he was playing tick and what drove them. When he was working on the film Awakenings, he worked closely with a doctor and a Tourette's patient so he could better understand people who suffered from mental illnesses. When he did the movie The Fisher King, he dove into the part of playing a homeless man. Williams said that researching these roles helped him gain an understanding that people who are homeless and suffer from mental illnesses are people just like everybody else. Their brains are just not functioning like everyone else's brains are. They aren't worth any less, and most people are just one traumatic incident away from being in that position, which is sad but true. In 1992, Williams did the voice for Batty in Fern Gully. I hated that movie. I hated it. I wouldn't even watch it. When I was a kid, it was like the rage. And I remember like going to a friend's house and they wanted to watch. And I was like, why? This movie's stupid. And then the funny thing is, is now like being older, some like, you know, other people my age or a little bit younger, they'll talk about it like it was one of the greatest movies ever. And I'm just like, I don't understand. I didn't like it then. I've never liked it. I haven't seen it in probably 20 years. I don't ever want to see it again. Just not my thing. Uh, even though he was in it. Uh, anyway, the part was specifically written for him when the producers of the movie had seen his stand-up, and then they asked him to be a part of the film. At that time, animated films were very different than they are now. Animated films were mainly voiced by character actors or other B-list actors. At the time, uh, at the same time, Williams was approached by Disney to be the voice of Genie in their upcoming film, Aladdin. When John Musker and Ron Clements, the producers and directors of Aladdin, wrote the first draft of the script... For the film, they had the idea that the genie was a transforming stand-up comedian very much like Robin Williams. They wrote the part with him in mind without even asking him to do it until later on in the process. They said they knew that if Williams declined the offer, they would be in big trouble because the whole concept for Aladdin was built around Robin Williams. So they finally went and approached Williams and asked him to do the part. And he was hesitant and didn't want to do it at first, so he didn't accept they then asked animator Eric Goldberg to create a sample reel of the genie set to some of Williams' stand-up, and then they invited him over and they showed it to him. The reel made Williams laugh his ass off, that's what they quote said, and it convinced him to accept the part. I really would love to see that sample reel. <laughs> I looked Dude, for Dude, that it, was so smart. Him. They didn't give up. They, they got him. That's Yeah. Well, they kind of had to because they backed themselves into a corner. They wrote a part for him without asking. And then he said, no, and eh, I don't really want to. But that actually is really smart. Like, just get there. Then they got their best animator. At the time, he was like, and still is, like one of the best animators. They were like, just to, we'll get this video, audio of him and just draw something to him. And it made him laugh and it worked. But Williams agreed to do the film for about $70,000 and under some conditions. Really? Yeah. Mm. It's just $70,000, which is nuts. (laughs) So he said Disney could only use his name in 25% or less of the promotional and marketing material for the film. 
Part of the reason for this was because he had another film he was working on called Toys, which I've never seen, and he didn't want Toys to suffer because of Aladdin because it was going to be released a month after Aladdin, which sadly is exactly what happened. He also did not want his voice to be used to sell merchandise. So Disney, being the evil empire that it is, didn't respect William's request. Really, Disney is basically the empire from Star Wars. Like, they're really just that. Uh, Williams said that is exactly what Disney did was uh, like a violation of trust. To make matters worse, the president of Disney at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg, expected that Williams would drop out of Ferngully to focus on the bigger role of film, bigger role and bigger film. When Williams didn't, did not, he tried to sabotage Ferngully. Twice, the makers of Ferngully rented facilities to make the film, and then Disney came in and outbid them and took it over, and they just didn't use them. They just didn't want Ferngully to have a place to be made. Then they found space in a brewery, and then Disney attempted to buy the brewery so they couldn't use it, but they weren't able to buy the brewery, so they got to make the film in a brewery. Like, what the heck? So... The writer of Ferngully said Robin was furious with Disney and told them, you know, it's my voice. You can't stop me. So now we know that Disney basically has only gotten more evil, especially in the last like 10 years. They now own Star Wars, Fox, ABC, ESPN, Touchstone, Marvel, A&E, History Channel, which doesn't talk about history anymore, uh, Lifetime, Pixar, Hollywood Records, and Core Publishing. They own so much out there. It's ridiculous. Uh, Disney broke their promises to Williams because they felt like he should have quit Ferngully and Williams was furious about them not honoring their promise to him. So this began the feud between the two parties. Williams publicly blasted Disney for this and he did this for quite a while. But the success of Aladdin led other A-list stars to start lending their voices to animated films. Now every animated film has like several A-list voices in it. I mean, think about Shrek. I mean, any, any animated film in the last, like, 15, 20 years, it's got seven, eight really famous people in it. Yeah, it's almost now like they sell the movie with the people that are going to yeah. be doing the voices. It's like yeah. it's kind of reversed. <laughs> it's, it's really flipped it around. And it's really all because he was in Aladdin, and he was, like, one of the first people to, one of the first big superstars to come in and change that. But Williams continued to make successful movies with various roles, such as Hook, Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji, Flubber, Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams, and more. So Williams did a psychological thriller called One Hour Photo in 2002. Have you ever seen this? No, I haven't seen that one. It's, it's a good film. I like uh, Dead Poets Society. I have not seen that. Oh, man. There's if a- you haven't seen Dead Poets Society, man, you got you to gotta see that. That I'll, is a I'll more serious role by him, but you'll see why it's important when you... Now that you know the history of Robin Williams, yeah. I've seen several of his movies, but I haven't seen them all. Now that, I'm, now that I've done this, I'll probably go watch more of them. Uh, in the film One Hour Photo, Williams plays a photo technician at a big box store, like Walmart or Target, who becomes obsessed with a family through developing their photos. Yes, kids, back in the day, like in 2002, you took pictures with your camera, then you had to take the film to the store to get it developed or mail it away. When I was a kid, we would mail it somewhere, then they mail the pictures back like, you know, a week or two later. Man, that was now like the d- best job in the 80s. <laughs> I always wanted to be the photo guy. 
<laughs> That's not creepy at all, but yeah. No. <laughs> well, in this movie, his character was pretty creepy. I first saw the movie, and I actually bought the movie, and he I had no idea what it was about, but I expected it to have at least some humor and jokes in it. But Williams expertly portrayed a creepy stalker. That's all I'm going to say it without spoilers, but he's just this like creepy stalker guy who like feels like he got to know a family through developing their photos and gets way too personal with them and freaks them out. Really good movie. Uh, so Mark Romanek, the director of one hour photo said that while on the set, he noticed that Williams was addicted to making people laugh. He would go off on rants and do characters and try and make everybody laugh. Romanek quickly learned that if he let Williams do it for a bit early in the day, he would get it out of his system and then he would perform better throughout the rest of the day. So he would get there in the morning and Robin would just be all energized up and he would let him like tell jokes and make everybody laugh. And they'd finally be like, oh, okay, let him wind down a little bit. And then he would just like act really, really well, which is kind of smart. So at the time of filming one hour photo, Williams was invited to be a guest on whose line is it anyway? I saw this when it first aired and I died laughing. Like I remember this. It was so iconic for me in my how, life. How like have I remember I not seen this. I remember where I was. I was I was working building a gas station. Uh, I was a car rough carpenter. I was working on helping build a gas station. And I remember like me and a couple other like we were working like probably two or three hours away from where I lived at the time. So like they rented a hotel for us to stay at. And one of the guys like, Hey, whose line is on? And Robin Williams is on. So we like all went over to this other guy's room to watch it. It was really, really funny. Hands down. It was the best episode of the show ever. And probably the best 22 minutes of, you know, comedy TV in all of all time. In my opinion, you can look it up and find it on YouTube. Oh, I'm doing it's it right him. after this. It's him improving, and it's hysterical. Like, I just watched it again the other day when I was doing research, and I just laughed. It's so good. If you, have, yeah, if you haven't seen it, go look it up. His interactions with Ryan Stiles, Colin Mockery, and Wayne Brady, it's the best improv I've ever seen between the three of them. Some of the best, like, like there's, I have so many inside jokes with, like, my brother and other people who watch that. It's so funny. Yeah, I've seen Wayne Brady live, you know, in Vegas. Yeah, and he was another one like Robin Williams, where it's just like, okay, there's talented, and then there's this level. Yeah, like these <laughs> Wayne guys Brady's are, on that. Yeah, their improbabilities are just off the charts, man. Yeah, it's ludicrous. <laughs> so as I was putting the episode, yeah, I it's it's pure gold watching that again. I I, I could watch it again and again and again. It's so funny. Uh, Eric Idle of Monty Python uh, was a friend of Williams. And he said that he would ride 60 to 70 miles on his bicycle, you know, and that would, that physical exertion would help him not think about his negative thoughts. And it also helped him uh, not fall into the trap of drug addiction so much. William said that cycling saved his life. And at this time, uh, Williams admitted to his friends and his family that he was an alcoholic and he had begun drinking <coughs> while filming in Alaska he said filming in such a remote place made him feel very lonely and he drank to ease the loneliness. And then when he came home, actually it was an interview. I saw an interview with him where he said like the first day he was just like lonely. And so he got like a little bottle of Jack Daniels, like the little one from the mini fridge. 
And then he said by the time he left, he was drinking a whole bottle of Jack Daniels every night. Whoa. Yeah. So he had kind of a problem with that. So Eric Idle said that he believes that Robin didn't feel worthy, that somewhere deep down, you know, Robin Williams really struggled with self-worth. And he said that, you know, he believes that cycling helped him combat his depression and his drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, Williams then teamed up with his close friend, Billy Crystal, and Whoopi Goldberg, and they helped found Comic Relief USA, an HBO benefit to raise money for the homeless. And as of 2014, it had raised $80 million. Williams said that he felt blessed because he came from a wealthy home and he wanted to do something to help those less fortunate than him. Williams also did benefits to support literacy, women's rights, and veterans. He was a regular on the USO circuit, traveling to 13 different countries and performing for 90,000 deployed troops. And you can find some of those USO bits he did on YouTube. They're really funny. And actually, one thing I thought was really cool, uh, he when he would, like you can tell by watching them, he would tailor his jokes to the men, men and women in the service. And then he also, you could tell he like sat down and took time to learn and write jokes for them. It wasn't like he just went and did his normal bit, which I'm sure they would appreciate it. But I thought that was really cool how he's like, yeah, I'm going to go do this for the troops. But then he like, like put time and effort into it, like really put some thought into it. And I thought I be, they probably really appreciated that. I would think like he thought about his audience. He wanted to like interact with them. And so on March 24th, 2009, Williams underwent heart surgery to replace his aortic valve because he had an irregular heartbeat. This forced him to postpone some of his shows on his Weapons of Self-Destruction tour. His recovery took eight weeks. And then, you know, his, he was getting older and his health, he was like 57 at the time. So his health wasn't, you know, as good as it used to have been. Uh, Williams and then his second wife divorced in 2010 and then he was later remarried to Susan Schneider why did I put remarried he was later married to his third wife Susan Schneider in 2011 not long after this Williams was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia he confessed to his family and his friends that this really really scared him his good friend, Bobcat Goldthwaite, said that he didn't seem like his normal self after he had gotten diagnosed with Lou body dementia. He said he wasn't as sharp as he used to be, and he was in a lot of pain. Now, Louis body dementia, for you guys, I didn't know what this is. I mean, obviously, it's a form of dementia, but it's, I wanted to find out what it was. So it is an uncommon form of dementia that is closely related to Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Louis bodies are small clumps of protein that develop inside nerve cells that disrupt the chemical messengers, leading the nerve cells unable to communicate with the other nerve cells regularly. This eventually causes the nerve cells to die or be damaged. When a nerve cell dies, it does not replicate and is lost forever, unlike other cells in our bodies, which can replicate. This is why heavy drinking and drug use is so destructive. The more brain cells you kill, the less you have, and then you suffer for it. Current medical science does not know how or why Lewy bodies form. There are many symptoms, some of which are difficulty moving, poor circulation, poor alertness, and full-blown hallucinations. So on August 11, 2014, 
Williams committed suicide at his home in Paradise K, California, by hanging himself. An autopsy concluded that there were no drugs or alcohol in his system and only normal levels of his prescription medication. His wife said that Lewy body disease was, quote, the terrorist inside my husband's brain. However you look at it, the presence of Lewy bodies took his life. Williams was cremated and his ashes were scattered in San Francisco Bay the day after his death. <coughs> so it's actually like one of those things where you, like, when I first heard about that, like, I remember watching the news. It was like, oh, Robin Williams committed suicide today. And I was like, oh, that's sad. But you, I'd already seen enough interviews with him and, you know, heard him do bits about depression or alcoholism. And I thought, oh, well, he must have been so depressed that he took his life. But I had no idea about the Louis body dementia. <clears throat> so he very well could have not been in his right mind. Oh. Or he could have been just like, I don't want my family to go suffer through this. So... Whatever his reason was, it was really, really sad. But by all accounts, Williams grew up in a stable and loving home with a good family. Obviously, his wife wasn't perfect and had its ups and downs, just like everybody does. Some people have the idea that the best comedians are deeply troubled, troubled people from really horrible backgrounds and they use humor as a coping mechanism. But Williams did, while Williams did have struggles and battles, but by his own admission, he had a good family home and life and then still struggle with alcoholism and drug addiction. He would even talk about these subjects in his stand-up, pointing out the truths of his battle while making it humorous. And in his uh, stand-up show, Weapons of Self-Destruction, he talks about being an alcoholic and it's hilarious. His bit on why alcoholics do what they do and how far they'll go is so funny. It's so funny. <laughs> As a Current psychologists have learned there is often a link between substance abuse and mental illness. As you know, this and this winds up having like a roller coaster effect on somebody's life. When everything is great, there is less draw towards the substances, but then there's the withdrawal systems, withdraw symptoms, and then that comes, you know, brings along depression and anxiety. And you know, the the brain is just like kind of combating these two things and not working correctly. So it's, you know, it's, it's just one of those sad things where like, you, you kind of wonder, you know, was this there before? Was this brought on by drug and alcohol abuse? Like, you don't really know and you'll never really know. And it really doesn't matter. It's just something to be aware of. But uh, one thing that I've always thought is Robin Williams is proof that very hairy people like me can be successful and funny. So to all my haters out there, suck it. <laughs> Like literally, though, if you've seen Robin Williams' arms, yeah, you've seen Mark's arms. <laughs> he might have seen, had more hairy arms than me. I don't know, man. It's like two orangutans just slapping fives, <laughs> just hanging out, and like I don't know. I picture you guys hanging out in like some floral print shirts, <laughs> being all hairy and shit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like when you can comb your back, man. I. <laughs> it's like your shampoo bill must be huge. <laughs> it's like, do you even I, use body wash? It's just all shampoo. I just buy it by the barrel. <laughs> you gotta buy the shit that's like everything in one. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's and it's by the barrel. I have a pump, a barrel outside with just a pump, and I pump it into my shower. 
It's like a pop dispenser that's been modified. Costco doesn't even sell it in the sizes that I need it to come in. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And that's with no hair on your head. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see what you look like as a little kid and you have like a huge head of hair. (laughs) My dad has pictures somewhere. Because that would be really weird for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You'd be like, wait, it's backwards. <laughs> so uh, Williams once said that one of his greatest fears was becoming dull or becoming like a rock. And yet he really, really struggled with burning out. So I thought that was pretty interesting. He didn't want to be dull. He wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be making people laugh, making people happy. But I didn't realize this till I did you know, this research. He has a lot of really cool quotes, like a lot of wisdom. He, he learned a lot in his life. So I was going to read off some of these quotes, you know, comment on them, Juan. They're really, I thought they were, some of these are pretty cool and pretty profound. Uh, first quote is, if you're that depressed, reach out to someone. And remember, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah, I've thought that. That's it's actually kind of interesting. He said that and then he unfortunately took his own. See, but when I heard that he first died, that's not what I heard. I heard that he died of audio rocks. What are the effects? Oh, auto erotics. Er, yeah. yeah. No, that wasn't it. No, at all. That was just some bullshit. That was just somebody trying to get clicks on their website or something for sure. No, he he hung himself, but uh, it wasn't because of that. Yeah, None I just, of the research I went into found that. So I just, I have poor uh, links to information, apparently. <laughs> Fake news! <laughs> Were you, do you get your news on The Onion? No, I get it in North Korea. <laughs> Did you know that? Apparently you do. Yeah, there's a unicorn right down the street. So. <laughs> They're going to kill me, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Did you like that picture I sent you with the silver chopsticks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to a Malaysian restaurant with Jazz, and they gave me silver chopsticks. And I was like, take a picture. I have to send this to Juan. <laughs> you know, you think it ended the podcast, people, but it doesn't. No. Have you seen some of the shit we text back and forth to each other? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it's hilarious. It is funny, though. Like, <laughs> if I'm having a tough day... I'll just text Mark. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we do that uh, pretty frequently. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty regular but You know, that's thing. the thing, too. It's like, I, I can see how Robin Williams could feel like if he had this disease that was going to affect his ability to be clear-minded and sharp, like where he was going to yeah. lose his ability to make people laugh. To him, that yeah. probably was death. Yeah. He wasn't going to get to be him. That was Whatever he wanted to project as that was him, he wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. And that might have been just been on too unbearable for him. Yeah. And yeah, and actually, the members, like some of the, oh man, where is it? Some of the symptoms for that are difficulty moving, poor concentration, poor alertness, memory problems. You know, it's part uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and then hallucinations. So like there's even the thing, like, was he having a hallucination? Was he regularly having hallucinations? Like his family doesn't want to talk about that. So I think, I mean, respect that. The fact I'm, I'm that kinda... that's progressive scares the crap out of me because I got like eight of the ten. You know what I mean? <laughs> I 
I'm a, I'm a hallucination away from hanging myself in the closet. It's like, man. So, yeah, but the thing is, like, you have no idea what was actually going on in his brain. And his wife even said that the dementia killed him. So, like, you know, his friends, his family were like, he. it changed him for the worse. And, and you know what? That could happen abruptly. My father, you know, suffers from that. And yeah. it went from, like, I didn't really notice it to, holy shit, in, yeah. like, months. Yeah. To where it was, like, okay. now he doesn't know who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 horrible. I mean, it's like, would I want to realize that I don't get things? My dad was, is not, not intelligent. He's a very bright man. So it's like I could see that struggle of losing your own identity and losing yourself. That's, yeah. that's a, probably a very... Uh, that would be for him probably really bad because that would be the ultimate loneliness. Yeah. And it had to have been terrifying. Yeah, that scares the crap out of me for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you stop and think about it and put yourself in that shoes where if you get diagnosed with a disease and you're going to forget your family, you're going to forget your friends, you're going to forget yourself, like, that's got to be terrifying. You know, even if you have the best family and they're going to take great care of you, like, the first thing I would think, like, man, I don't want my family to go through this. Like, how terrible am I going to treat them? Like, you can, I can see how that would scare somebody. Oh, that'd be terrifying. Yeah, I'd be an asshole. I, I don't, <laughs> don't want to do that to them. Yeah. So, back to these quotes. Actually, this one is one of the funniest things I think he ever said. Uh, William said he was once on a German talk show. And the woman interviewing asked him, she said, Mr. Williams, why do you think <laughs> there is not so much comedy in Germany? And he replied, did you ever think you killed all the funny people? Oh, shit. Good old Jewish temple. Wow. But see, that's what I mean. How, yeah. how quick was that? Yeah. Right? Like that was in the middle, like. In a conversation. Yeah. And just spit that right out. You know, like the rest of us, we mumble around all day. Like when someone gets us and we're like, I should have said this. And yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you get it finally a good one after like, you know, three hours of self-loathing. <laughs> yeah. It's like <laughs> point three of a second. Yeah. Did you ever think you killed them all? Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> and he even said in an interview, I saw an interview where he said that. He said the the interviewer said no, and then he kind of cringed and was like, ooh, what did I say? <laughs> like, he even knew. It was like, ah, crap. <laughs> Maybe he shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> uh, another quote here, which I think is really cool. He said, was, a friend is someone who listens to your bullshit, then tells you that it's bullshit, and then listens some more. And I really do think that is a good definition of a friend. That's us. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that actually reminds me of like, I was talking, I saw Tamika last weekend and it just reminded me of Tamika. Tamika's like one of those good friends who was like, will listen to your bullshit and then call you out and say that it is. And then she'll listen more. Like that's, that's someone who cares about you. They're, they're, they're going to listen to you. They're going to be there for you. They're going to call you out and then they're still going to be there for you. That, and that's exactly our, <laughs> our friendship has always been like that. <laughs> that's good people though. Yeah. And then another quote here, William said, my battles with addiction definitely shaped how I am now. They really made me deeply appreciate human contact and the value of friends and family and how precious that is. 
So a lot of wisdom there. Another quote of his was, if you need booze or drugs to enjoy your life to the fullest, then you're doing it wrong. Another good quote. Another one here. Seize the day because believe it or not, each of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing. So I really like that one. You know, live your life. Don't don't waste your time. Don't fritter. <laughs> <laughs> don't waste your time on ranch. Don't eat ranch. Don't fritter. That's right. <laughs> Definitely don't put ranch on your fritter. Yeah. <laughs> That's a death sentence, bro. <laughs> That's a coronary waiting to happen. That's right. <laughs> so another one here. He said it was, you will have bad times, but they will always wake you up to the stuff that you weren't paying attention to. And I thought that that is, that's a wow, lesson that I learned a, a long time ago. That's a really good, le- that's a really good thing to keep in mind. Like when you are going through really bad times, like stop and pause and go, wait a minute, what am I not paying attention to? That's really smart. And then one and a couple more quotes here. He, uh, he, this one I really like. He said, I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anyone else to feel like that. I feel like I'm in therapy right now. <laughs> so do I. And that's actually something like I, I heard, like when I read that, I was like, wow, I guess that's why I try to make people happy because I've had plenty of times where I've, I've been through some wild, crazy stuff. I mean, like if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know, I've like experienced death of loved ones and been through like a lot of heartbreaks and relationships and then battled my own deal with mental illness and depression. And like, I think a lot of the, man, I want, I don't want people to feel like that. So you try and make the people around you happy. You try and bring them joy. But then so you I realize, feel- you know what? That's like everybody. Yeah. We're, there's, Nobody really, I, I don't know anybody who's stable. Yeah, it's if, true. That's, Nobody like, a, is that's really. like a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. And if I did know someone who was like really like stable, stable, I yeah. feel like they'd probably bore me to death. Yeah. But nobody out there is stable. They wouldn't this come around la- very often. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> this last one here is pro- is my favorite quote of his. Uh, it's something that I've learned the hard way. So I wanted to say this last so it would hopefully stick in your brains, everybody, because it's a lesson all of us should learn at some point in time. And the sooner we learn it, the better. Don't associate yourself with toxic people. It is better to be alone and love yourself than to be surrounded that people by people that make you hate yourself. Yeah, I love me. <laughs> Real lucky in this room for any of you. <laughs> so you know what's funny is I you know I know that I'm not I, I guess I don't know I I like being me I accept the me that I am yeah. you know because I know a lot of people that struggle with things you know about their identity or how they feel about how people think about them or their own self worth and I have extremes like days where you know I just feel like oh I'm worthless whatever but. I have a lot more days where I wake up and like, <laughs> that's one bad motherfucker right there. <laughs> that guy's probably going to have a pretty awesome day. If I was going to be anybody, probably going to be that guy. And then, you yeah. know, and that's my attitude, you know, it's because like most, let's, let's be real. Everyone has like their grind, their daily routine, right? Yeah. And it's so easy to let your daily routine and your daily grind just kind of like control 
it controls kind of even your moods because you're always doing the same stuff at the same time and all that. So <clears throat> I combat that myself personally with I constantly interact with people. Yeah. I stopped at a rest stop today and stopped talking to some old lady for like five minutes. Like, <laughs> anyways, but I'm just saying, like, so I'm always looking for something to make that lull different. You know, the reason I use talking to people is because I meet interesting people all the time. And then mm-hmm. you'll find, you know, they'll tell you some random, people love talking about themselves. So I get to hear, like, the best stories, they're people's best stories. Like, you don't know more than 10 minutes, so you don't have to hear it more than once. You don't got to yeah. hear their, like, less impressive stories. I get all the good stories. And so I just, you know, use that. And sometimes you learn stuff from people. Yeah. And sometimes you meet people and you go, wow, I'm so scared of them. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. That's very true. <laughs> but I know it's like to like, you know, humor's always been a thing with me too. And I always wonder like, what is that motivation that I always have? Yeah. You know, for the laugh. Yeah. That, that addicting. I think it's a like what you said where it's like, I, I always want to be that friend where it's like when, if you're having a bad day, they're like, yeah, you know, I could go hang out and I'll probably at least laugh or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or the real support friend, like you have like Tamika and Lenny and you know, like just, you have some, you have some good friends there, man. Oh, hey, uh, cause they care. they also have that great sense of humor. Yeah. I mean, you guys are, you guys literally are a sitcom. You, you, I, <laughs> Look, dude, come on. You got an Asian one and everything. You got you got a white girl, an Asian, a black girl, lesbian. Dude, you got it all. Latina. Yeah, we got it all. You got every you got every kind of almost demographic there. Now we we do. If you were bisexual, that would cover it all. <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, you gotta make a decision Actually, today. I'm just speaking, saying, you know, that would speaking, round it out. Speaking of that, <laughs> like a year or two like a year ago. Uh, Lenny and I were talking about softball and Lenny said, Hey, you know, you should join like, uh, there's a LGBTQ like softball league. And she's like, do you want to play? And I told her, I said, I've wanted to play in a league. I just don't know anybody. I said, I don't want to play. I want to play in a league at least with one friend. It's more fun with friends. She goes, well, I'm in a league. She goes, but you're not, you know, lesbian or bi or gay or anything. And I was like, no. I was like, yeah, it's no problem. I was like, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to be rude and go in there. She's like, nah, we'll just say you're bi. <laughs> I was like, she's like, you could, you, she's like, no one needs to know. And I was like, okay. But then like the time came around and I forgot about it and softball season's over. <laughs> I was like, I just want to play softball. <laughs> I just feel like, look, I'm open. Convince me. I don't know. You got, <laughs> you got all season. What do we got? 13 games. <laughs> Let's play ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> hey man, I don't judge people at all. There's got to be a reason. There's a bunch of people doing it. It can't be all that bad. That's all I'm saying. Like, look, uh, you know, I I think that I just think people are just so stupid when they judge people about anything like that. You know, but yeah, that is funny that they even have to come up with something like that. Dude, you could totally pull that off. Because you're like so nice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I also know how to make it awkward, too, so I probably could pull it off. And you cook very well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, man. You could be like a secret agent. <laughs> yeah. 
that's that's true. I could be like a secret. Did we take it too far, Lenny? No, no. <laughs> I'm gonna get a text in a couple <laughs> days. Like, what the hell? <laughs> just do what everyone else does. Just blame it on me. <laughs> it's an easy out. No one cares. I know they're not gonna ruffle me. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is the motto of the show. If you're offended, contact Juan. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know what's really weird though is like I was thinking about Rob Williams still, and like he could say and do things that nobody else could do too, like that. Like, oh yeah, uh, like make a comment like that. Yeah, that you mentioned. You know, I was like, did you mention you possibly killed him? I was like, wow, that's so like yeah, blatant, but yeah. still funny. Yeah, still funny. Which is why, and, like you said, after this recording, I'm going to go look up that. Uh, yeah. The one, uh, that episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah. And I want to see, uh, what is the one, the second one that you mentioned? The favorite this. stand-up one. Of his. Oh, the it was uh, Robin Williams live, live on Broadway and then Robin Williams. Yeah, live on Broadway. I want to see, I haven't seen that one. I saw the other you one. You haven't seen that no. one? Oh my goodness. I've seen that one the most. I probably oh, I've, I've seen that me, dozens and dozens of times. I'm gonna love in, it. In that one, there's a few. Jo- <laughs> there's one joke he makes because it's 2002. So George W. Bush was the president, and he made a joke about George W. Bush being retarded. <laughs> it's so funny, and I'm like, you couldn't make a joke like that now. But then I was like, he probably could. Because like Sun said last week, like the more offensive the joke is, the better the joke has to be. Oh, I got you. And, yeah. And so it's it's hilarious. And you know, with him, he has all the voices and everything. It's just, it's so funny. Like, I might actually, like, <laughs> now I'm like, dig it. I want to be there because I want to watch it with you. I want to see your reactions. Because <laughs> it's, it's so, maybe we could just watch it at the same time. It's so funny. But anyways, yeah, that's our episode, everybody. Uh, uh, Robin Williams, you know, is my favorite comedian, stand-up comedian of all time. I would have loved to have to, you know, get an interview with him, but unfortunately, he's passed away. So I know my favorite what? passed away too, man. Sam Kinison. Kinison. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching the documentary about him uh, with you. <laughs> yeah, I own it. It's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, everybody, thanks for listening. Thank you very much for your support. You know, hit us up this week. We'll be back with you next week with another interview with another comedian. Thank you, everybody. Seahawk, Predator out. Enjoy the week. Like, look, I'm open. Convince me. I don't know. You got, <laughs> you got all season. What do we got? 13 games. <laughs> Let's play ball. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>